Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, May 18th, we are studying Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Israel's rejection of the righteousness that comes through faith was not a failure on the part of God or a failure on the part of his word. St. Paul answers objections that might arise to what he has said so far here in chapter 9, further attempts either to accuse God or to get man off the hook. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Dan Speckard. Pastor Speckard serves at Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Pastor Speckard, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Yeah, thank you for having me, uh, having me, Pastor Apple. Pastor Speckard, the congregation you serve is the Church of the Week here on KFUO. Before we get started with our study this morning, tell us how KFUO is important to the saints of God at Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sure. I would uh, uh, definitely need more than just a, a few minutes to uh, give a full answer to that, but um, I can tell you that since arriving here in Godfrey, Illinois, um, about five years ago, uh, it's been clear that KFUO is just a, a treasure uh, that our people, uh, and not just our people, but all the Lutherans in this region uh, have had. And, um, you know, in talking to, to many members of our congregation since I've arrived, uh, it's amazing how often you'll hear, uh, I was listening to KFUO this morning, or I heard this hymn on KFUO yesterday afternoon, and um, it seems to be a really healthy uh, and helpful um, aspect of their their spiritual life. Um, you know, I might just share one one story. There's there's a man, uh, Roy Hobby, who who you might remember, Pastor Apple, when you were um, a field worker at Faith, um, who was a a longtime Lutheran, attended every Bible study. Uh, would sit up front even as he was getting very old and would constantly, uh, frankly, he would interrupt my my pre-prepared study to talk about what KFUO had said that week, uh, which was wonderful. And then at the end of his life, he uh, had to move to Minnesota uh, to be closer to family, and he was able to stream KFUO uh, into his nursing home. Um, and I just I just love the idea of, of Roy Hobby continuing to uh, hear the uh, shows and the programs and the, the music that he so cherished uh, all the way up in Minnesota, even into his dying day. And, you know, I imagine I, I wasn't there when he passed, but uh, I imagine it's likely they had that on in the background. And so he would have exited this life with God's word and scriptured uh, and incarnate being preached uh, and God's, um, you know, hymns proclaiming the gospel being sung. And he would have opened his eyes to the next life. Uh, and had very much the same thing. Hmm. Um, and that's, you know, that's just, that's what KFUO does uh, for the, the people who listen. So uh, just grateful to have this opportunity. We had a member um, take it upon herself to um, uh, arrange this, and we're grateful to her. And uh, like it's, it's just a, a privilege to be Church of the Week. 
Yeah, th- thank you to the to the Saints of God at Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois, for being the Church of Week here on KFU. I, I recall Roy with great fondness, Pastor Speckard, uh, and, and yeah, his his love for KFU was uh, always evident, and and for all the Saints there at Faith. So thank you again for your congregation to be the Church of the Week here on KFU, and thank you, Pastor Speckard, for being our guest here on Sharper Iron to look at this part of, of Romans chapter nine. We're in the middle of the chapter. It's it's part of this larger section. Chapters nine through eleven really form a unit, and we we looked at the first part of the chapter introduced it last week. Help us into this text today. Give us the context. Remind us where we are and what Paul's doing. Yeah, yeah. So as exactly what you just said, Romans 9 through 11 form uh, sort of a unit within the epistle. Um, and, and it's maybe helpful to back up a little bit just to look at the the full structure. You know, the, the theme, as you've covered, uh, having to do with the righteousness of God and the righteous living by faith established in the first chapter. And then uh, you know, chapters 1 through 4, you have the righteousness of God laid out almost in contrast to the uh, total uh, lack of righteousness on the part of man. Uh, chapters 5 through 8, you see the righteous of God, righteousness of God made manifest uh, so fully in Christ uh, and the, the ministry of, of uh, Christ's Church. Um, and then it's almost like in Romans 9, having established that the righteousness of God is um, made fully manifest in Jesus, um, it's like Paul takes a, a deep breath uh, in order to now step back and explain how it is that that righteousness of God made manifest in Jesus uh, actually becomes your righteousness, right? Righteousness for the uh, the Roman Christians and righteousness for uh, both Jews and Gentiles who continue to uh, have their relationship with God uh, mediated by faith. Um, so that's that's sort of what we're getting into but that that step back, that sort of deep breath and, and maybe beginning to answer the question of how all of this works, how it is that God's righteousness becomes your righteousness, um, gets us into some really um, uh, almost beautifully challenging uh, scripture, uh, because it's scripture that, that challenges maybe our natural um, uh, understanding of, of how we justify ourselves before God uh, and causes us to wrestle with some tension uh, with respect to not only where we stand before God, but how it is that God works his righteousness out amongst us. So there's a, uh, a lot to grapple with here. Um, and I might just, here at the beginning, uh, if, if your listeners will indulge a, a personal uh, story, um, you know, Pastor Apple, I emailed with you that, that we're doing this study at a time in my life that is just very, very hectic. There's a lot going on, and I was... Um, frankly, feeling kind of just overwhelmed. We're, we're selling a house, we're buying a house, my wife is pregnant, which is wonderful. Our congregation is preparing to uh, to come out of the um, uh, coronavirus restrictions we're, we're hoping in the coming weeks. And, you know, I like like people do, I was focused on myself. I mean, I, I was totally turned inward, uh, very much taken on a, a woe is me mentality. Um, and then I had this chance to get into Romans 9, and you just hear time and time again, worry less about what you do. Look to see what God has done. Look to God's righteousness, God's mercy, God's patience. Uh, obviously the foundation of eternal salvation, but that, that foundation is a reality in our lives today. So that is sort of the, the mentality with which I would have us approach these verses. And I, I can just say personally, uh, what a tremendous comfort uh, they have been uh, as I've had a chance to get into them. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a very helpful introduction for us to focus on 
what God is doing in this text, and particularly focus on the matter of his righteousness that is made evident through his mercy and patience. There's going to be some some parts of this text that when you read them the first time, you you might someone might ask, Pastor Speckard, you said this was supposed to comfort me, and that sounds a bit terrifying, particularly when we start talking about someone like Pharaoh, as just as, as one example. But but that focus on God as the actor in this text, and to recognize, as other guests have pointed out, that his proper work is to show mercy, to be gracious. And his his alien work to where he condemns through the law, that is all done for the sake of his proper work. And so to keep our focus there, I think, I think is going to help us grapple with some of those more challenging parts of this text so that we will hold on to, as you said, the comfort that is there for us in the midst of it. Any more introductory comments before we go ahead and jump in? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, I would just say that you, you really do um, uh, have to take Romans 9 through 11 as a unit. And, and so uh, as we study just these uh, 12, 13 verses, I would encourage the listeners to, um, as they're listening to, to your show as the, the days go by, uh, if you have a chance to read the three chapters, get the whole thing in your mind. Hear the, hear the start-to-finish argument, and then go back and delve into each individual passage, because it ties together, and the the comfort that really needs to be our, our starting point um, also is the ending point as you get to Romans 11. So um, that, that would be my advice for, for anybody listening. Let's go ahead and take a look at the text. We're in Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 14. Paul writes, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. That is the text for today, Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. So, Pastor Speckard, here at the, the beginning of the text, and really I think that this text is it seems to be structured around these two 
objections perhaps that either Paul has heard or Paul is anticipating from his his audience. And so verse 14, you get this transitional phrase in Paul, what shall we say then? And the first question he raises is, is there injustice on God's part? Where's where's this question coming from? Yeah, that you know, that's a great question. We see Paul use this uh, rhetorical device uh, earlier in Romans in chapter 3 where he uh, he sort of sets up a, a question that he can answer with a, an emphatic uh, no. Um, previously in Romans 9, you, you know, Paul had started to get into the, uh, the history of God's relationship with his uh, chosen people of the Old Covenant, and you see God um, actively working through um, uh, you know, Jacob and Esau and, and Isaac and Ishmael, you know, actively working and, and uh, in temporal terms choosing uh, the way through, uh, and the people through whom he's going to um, uh, make his righteousness known uh, throughout the whole world. And as you hear that history, you feel, uh, you almost cannot help but feel as though, um, you know, God is, God is making these, these choices, um, and it seems, um, if not arbitrary, it seems totally out of our control. And that doesn't seem, doesn't seem fair. Is that unjust that God, uh, that God would choose? Um, and then what Paul is wanting to uh, go on to, to demonstrate is that, first of all, it's, it's not unjust in, in any sense uh, that God would have the authority to do so. Uh, but second of all, and more importantly, uh, when God is making these choices, he is choosing for the benefit of all. Uh, that even if it appears that the, um, uh, you know, a, a decision of God or the will of God, uh, you know, causes somebody to be hard done by, in actuality, uh, if we could see the full picture in the way that God does, uh, we would see that it is his perfect righteousness uh, being worked out in real time, in real human history. Um, so, yeah, Paul gives an emphatic, uh, you know, by no means uh, answer to the, the rhetorical question. Uh, and that's important in, in this section of Romans also, because everything Paul wants to proclaim about the righteousness of the Christian is founded upon and flows out of the righteousness of God, right? And we, we know that well, uh, but it, it bears repeating that there is no righteousness apart from God. And so anything that would seem to uh, cast doubt upon uh, the perfect righteousness of our Creator um, is, is a total non-starter, um, because that would be to undermine uh, the righteousness that we, uh, we have received. Well, and even, I mean, the term that's translated injustice there in verse 14, that's related to this word of, of righteousness. So the, the accusation against God becomes, does he not have, I mean, to, to phrase it a different way, perhaps, does he have no righteousness? Does something like that? And then Paul says, of course, of course, that's not true. He has righteousness, and that's what he's going on to show. Indeed, indeed. So as he, he begins then to answer, you know, to back this answer up, by no means, is there injustice by no means, the first example he brings out is is Moses. What What's Paul bringing out with Moses here? Right, so you have this reference from Exodus chapter 33, and if you're uh, familiar with Exodus, you know that this is uh, this uh, message uh, that God, God speaks to his people through Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Uh, this is coming uh, immediately after the Golden Calf episode. Um, and Moses is very concerned uh, that, you know, God's people have, um, they haven't even departed Sinai yet. And God's people have already let him down in the most 
um, really abominable, abominable way uh, imaginable. And Moses is worried now that, well, okay, we're leaving Sinai as commanded. Are you still going to be our God? Are you going to go before us? And this gracious promise, this double promise, I will have mercy, I will have compassion, uh, of course, is foundational for the uh, relationship God would continue to have with his people, uh, that uh, the relationship of the chosen with God would depend upon uh, not their ability to remain faithful, uh, not their mercy, not their compassion, uh, but God's fidelity, God's mercy, God's compassion. Um, and Paul uses that as just you know evidence of when it comes to uh, the righteousness of the people whom uh, God chooses, this is Old Covenant or New Covenant, um, it starts and finishes with God. And you have this, this beautiful positive example of that. Um, and then, of course, we'll see the, uh, the, the, what you might call a negative example um, is still proclaiming uh, the same thing through Pharaoh um, earlier in Exodus. Yeah, the, the, the quote here from, or the reference to Exodus 33 is, is quite telling. I mean, and just, you know, he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion in the context of the golden calf. And, and even just, just thinking through how you or I might say something like that, you know, both of those are, are statements of, of mercy and grace, compassion. It's not, God doesn't say, I'm going to have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'm going to condemn whom I will condemn. The emphasis, and this is where Paul takes it in verse 16, the emphasis is on God who has mercy. That, And again, to that God's righteousness is fully seen when he has when he has mercy. There's a there's a collect, I can't remember where it shows up in the church here, that that says something to that effect, and I'm not gonna get it right, but it's it says something, oh God whose whose power is shown chiefly in showing mercy. And I think that's I think that's what Paul's wanting to emphasize here. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's it's underscored uh by the fact that the the people to whom he's showing mercy uh, and compassion in Exodus thirty three are people who have, you know, <laughs> at the first chance, abandoned him already after the the early of, earlier events of, uh, of Exodus. So, you know, as Paul makes clear in verse 16, it, it doesn't have to do with you, first and foremost. It has to do with God. And thanks be to God for that, because uh, we, we do not want our relationship uh, with him and our eternal salvation uh, to depend upon um, our own activity, uh, our own will, our own exertion, uh, we saw how that looked for the Israelites, and we know from our own lives uh, how that would look for us. So uh, thanks be to God that he is uh, one who has mercy. Um, and maybe I would just quickly add that, you know, that construction has mercy um, is a little bit challenging in English because um, in, in the in the Hebrew and the Greek, um, you have these what, what are called cognate verbs, where, where nouns um, can also be verbs. So... Um, in English, we wouldn't say that I mercy you. Um, we do have some verbs like that, like I love you. Love is a noun, and it's also a verb. But that's what it is for mercy here. God's mercy isn't just an idea. It's an action. God's compassion isn't just a concept, uh, but it's his activity amongst his people, for his people. And we're going to see that, that everything with our righteousness depends on God's activity for our sake. So you've got Israel there at 
at Mount Sinai, the golden calf incident, there's the positive example that Paul brings out for God's mercy here. What about the negative example that he speaks of Pharaoh? Now, chronologically speaking, this comes prior to the golden calf incident. What's, what's Paul's point bringing up Pharaoh here? Right, and maybe the, 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 a good place to start is by uh, getting out ahead of what Paul's point isn't. Um, people are going to hear this language of um, uh, hardening with respect to uh, Pharaoh, and that's what Paul's using this as an example of in Exodus chapter 9. Um, and we're going to perhaps be tempted to think in terms of uh, eternal election and double predestination, and uh, is it the case that God had doomed, uh, doomed Pharaoh to uh, damnation from the beginning? Well, that's, that's not at all what is happening here. Paul's overall point uh, is the same as with the what we might call the positive example, um, is just to demonstrate that God is in control, uh, that God is the one who is uh, accomplishing his purposes and his will throughout human history, um, even in the midst of, of very real um, uh, you know, historical events and historical people, uh, like Pharaoh. Um, what God does with Pharaoh uh, in Exodus chapters 4 through 14 uh, is he uses uh, even the uh, rejection of his word on the part of Pharaoh to accomplish his divine will, uh, not just for his people, but for the whole world, for all people, and that includes Pharaoh. As we see in verse 17, uh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show you my show my power in you, and that my, my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Well, the proclamation of God's name and the pouring out of his righteousness for salvation, uh, that's for every last person. Pharaoh isn't excluded from that. Um, we don't have time to get into the, uh, the full sort of um, discussion regarding what exactly was happening with Pharaoh uh, in Exodus 4 through 14 uh, with respect to hardening. But maybe just a couple of points. Um, first of all, when you have God talking about hardening initially, uh, in Exodus with respect to Pharaoh, uh, he's speaking in a predictive sense. He's telling Moses, this is what Pharaoh will do, uh, but he's not saying that this is what Pharaoh must do. Um, and anytime we talk about election, we have to make sure we're, uh, we're, we're distinguishing between election and foreknowledge. Um, and again, that's more than we can get into uh, on this, uh, in this hour. Um, but it's not until Pharaoh has repeatedly, of his own volition, by his own will, rejected God's word, uh, it's not until about the uh, the sixth or seventh plague that God finally actively, rather than predictively, hardens Pharaoh. But even that hardening is only with respect to temporal affairs. So he causes Pharaoh to um, uh, reject the opportunity finally to free the Israelites so that God can uh, demonstrate his power in delivering them. Uh, but even that would not have uh, uh, negated the possibility of salvation for Pharaoh had he repented uh, and believed, as we know that Egyptians did, uh, and other foreigners who came into the uh, uh, into contact with the Israelites in the Old Testament uh, had opportunity to do also. Uh, so, long answer to a short question. It's actually not nearly long enough an answer, but uh, I hope that helps explain a little bit of what's happening there. Yeah, it, it does, and and just I mean. We we did Exodus here on Sharper Iron. It's been almost a year ago now, and and I, I recall this conversation then because anytime you talk about Pharaoh, this it seems this text comes up from Romans nine, and and you're right to make that to note how you see in the book of Exodus 
God speaking predictively, saying this will happen. And, and as you rightly said, we want to distinguish between God's foreknowledge and his His election. And then when you actually see it play out in history, that those first, I think it is the first five plagues, the text is very specific to say that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And it's not until, as again, as it's playing out in history, it, the sixth plague and following, where then it says God hardened his heart. And as you said, that I, I think that's I think that's a helpful distinction to make that that's that hardening is not referring to the impossibility of Pharaoh being brought to repentance, but rather having to do with the way that this this whole narrative is going to play out there in the book of Exodus, so that it ends with God freeing His people according to His own doing, His own action, and I, I think then that ends up that ends up proving Paul's point even more because it, it's God doing it for the sake of showing mercy, which is ultimately for, for all, even if some reject it's that mercy is intended for, for all. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And, and um, you can see how people would get caught up in some of that language. Uh, and, and especially given the, um, uh, the topic of election, which comes up a little bit in these verses and elsewhere in Romans 9 through 11, uh, you can see how that mistake would be made, but really vital to to follow Paul's argument, see what he's he's saying and what he's not saying. And he just makes that more and more clear uh, as as this section of, of Romans 9 uh, goes on. Hmm. Yeah, it, it, uh, it does get more clear. And, and really, I think you, you have to, as, as you said, it'll become even clearer as you get to the end of his full argument in chapter 11 and you, I mean, you've got this in your notes, but I'll just, you know, in, in 1132, Paul's going to say, God has consigned all to disobedience that he have made mercy, may have mercy on all. And, and this account with, I mean, the, the quote positive example, the negative example, both here are both driving home to that point that Paul's going to get to by the end of, of this section before he, you know, just rejoices in, in the mercy of God and, and, opens up this great doxology there at the end of, of Romans 11. So we're going to go ahead and take our break, Pastor Specker, we're, we're, rather than just try to pick it up on this side. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFUO. We're going to take a short break, but we will be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFO. It is Monday, May 18th. We're looking at Romans chapter 9 verses 14 through 29 with Pastor Dan Speckard of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey is the church of the week here on KFUO. Pastor Speckard 
prior to the break, we left off looking at, we looked at that first section, verses 14 through 18. Paul answers this question, is there injustice on God's part by bringing up the example of the Israelites with the golden calf and Pharaoh? Now he comes in verse 19 to another question, which sounds, I, I think there's some similarities to the previous one. Why, the question is, Paul says, you'll, you'll say this then. Why does he, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? Take us into the second question that Paul's going to answer. Right. So the, the, the answer to the first question had everything to do with God's active word and the power of God playing itself out amongst uh, real people in real time. Um, and so then the next kind of logical rebuttal, and we don't know if this was, if Paul's trying to speak for an actual opponent here or if this is, uh, again, just him playing both sides of the argument in kind of a rhetorical style. But uh, but the logical rebuttal to what Paul just said is, well, if God is the only one whose action matters, uh, why does he still bother judging our actions? Why does he find fault? Uh, if God is going to uh, use us in various ways, both in our good and in our evil, to accomplish his purposes, uh, what's, you know, of what significance is our own, uh, our own activity? You know, the, the hypothetical person uh, asking this question of Paul is essentially trying to uh, push back a little bit and say, now wait a minute, what we do must matter. Um, it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't uh, resonate with reality to suggest that human activity is of no consequence. Um, so, you know, in that sense, it's a, it's a fair question. Uh, but you'll see, uh, you'll see in the way Paul answers it, um, it's a question that uh, needs to be approached with uh, the utmost humility. And uh, the answer is one that really does kind of put us, put us in our place. Mm. Um, yeah, the, the answer that Paul gives, it, it sounds... It reminds me of when the Lord answers Job by the end of the book of Job and the, who, who are you? Who are you to speak back? It sounds, sounds a lot like what the Lord says to Job. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, um, it makes perfect. That's a, that's a wonderful connection, uh, because the, uh, Lord's, (laughs) the Lord's response to Job, um, had everything to do with how little, how little Job can see and how much God can see. And in the same way, uh, what Paul is doing here is reminding us as we struggle to work out the significance of our own activity uh, and try to, try to make all of this fit in our, uh, in our own minds, um, Paul reminds us right off the bat, uh, you're not going to be able to do that, old man. Uh, you are not capable of uh, fully understanding the work and the purpose of God, because God who is outside of time uh, God who sees all things as though seeing one thing, God uh, who is the source of everything, um, he gets this, obviously. And you, who are in the middle of it, in your little insignificant uh, speck of space, uh, insignificant span of time, you can't possibly see the beginning and the ending. So, you know, first of all, Paul is saying, just remember your place. Don't question. But it is worth noting that Paul then uses that as an opportunity to, um, with some of that same imagery, the, the, the clay in the vessels, uh, to give an answer. He does sort of satisfy uh, the, the questioner um, uh, insofar as we can be satisfied given our lack of, of understanding. So in order to 
begin to answer this question, as you said, as in the limited way that you can, knowing your place before God, Paul uses this image of the potter and the clay. And he starts talking about what the potter can do with the clay. And then he, he, he moves his imagery into the, the two different vessels. And he starts to compare and contrast one, one vessel with another. Take us into this, this imagery that Paul is using and the answer that he's giving. There's, there's lots of places here where we want to be very careful with the, the way that Paul speaks so that we don't say something that he doesn't say. Yeah, that's ex- that's exactly right. And, and um, right off the bat, in, in verse in verse twenty one, uh, where we have the the distinction, you know, the the apparent distinction: one vessel vessel for honorable use, and then the English Standard Version translates it uh, another for dishonorable use. Um, I hadn't really been aware of this, but in the in the Blue uh, Concordia commentary um, uh, on on Romans. Um, and I don't know, doc, I assume it's Dr. Middendorf, I don't know his first name, but the author Middendorf points out that that dishonorable isn't really a, an appropriate translation here. It's more uh, it's more just ordinary. Um, so it's honorable and ordinary. So uh, the reason that's significant is that in verse 21, the, uh, the potter that is um, molding the clay is using all of the clay for a positive purpose. Now, to be sure, some of that purpose is going to seem uh, very glorious, very honorable, uh, and some of that purpose is going to seem very plain uh, and maybe not particularly noteworthy from a temporal perspective. Uh, but all of it is accomplishing the purpose of the molder, uh, of the potter, because why, why else would he do it? Um, so we might think in terms of, uh, you know, uh, in, in your house, you have probably a, a flower vase that is very, very nice and very, very precious. Um, and then in your house, if, it, if it's like my house right now, my uh, youngest daughter is potty training, uh, you have a vessel that is, is literally uh, for, for excrement. Um, but it's not a bad vessel. It's a little, it's a little potty, as we call it. Um, it has a very important use. Uh, we would be in a great deal of trouble without it. It's not glorious. But we who are over the vessels are using them each to accomplish our purpose. Well, God, who is over everything, is using every vessel, every lump of clay, of course, referring to humanity. We think about Genesis 2 here, um, uh, you know, Adam made out of clay. Um, God is using all of it to accomplish his good will, even if it doesn't look that way to us. And we think about, like, Pharaoh. Well, Pharaoh had this dishonorable role to play in the salvation history of God's people. Um, but the role was a necessary one, and God used him well. Um, so, you know, right off the bat, that's what Paul wants to make clear. Um, and then we get we narrow it down even further when we get into vessels of wrath and mercy. So, and just to, to reiterate that point, in verse 21, the emphasis there is on the word use, that it's, it's about how that God is using and he's using both. And, and maybe as you, as you were talking about the, the example from your house is, is a good one. I was thinking through, and I don't know if the, the language in the Greek is the same, but in first Corinthians 12, where Paul is talking about the body of Christ, he talks about presentable parts and less presentable parts. But, but again, and I think that's part of, now he's talking about the body of Christ there as a whole. So it's not exactly the same. But, but the idea there in the body of Christ is that whether you're a, quote, presentable part or an unpresentable, less presentable part, 
God's still putting you in the body. It's still his action. And and here the emphasis is again on the the use and the the terms honorable, dishonorable maybe aren't the best to convey that point in English. Both have a yeah, use. And, and and I would just jump in to say that that connection to the you know the language of the body of Christ that Paul uses elsewhere is really helpful because it reminds us that you know we we read this and we want to be I think we naturally we want to be comparing different people. Okay, so who's an honorable vessel? Who's an ordinary vessel? Um, but when we think about the unity of the body of Christ, we might also think about uh, the unity of our own our own lifespan. Uh, and what I mean is that this idea, this concept of honorable and ordinary, uh, applies to uh, applies to just the individual human being. I think we all know that there are times in our life where we have honorable position, right? So I, I'm a, a 31-year-old male. Um, there's a sense in which I, I am in an honorable spot in terms of the, uh, the, the power I have and the, you know, professionally and, and uh, economically, all of these things. Um, and, you know, a time will come when I'm no longer uh, 31. Uh, a time will come when, from an earthly perspective, I, I might very well feel like, uh, boy, God isn't, isn't using me in the same way. I don't have the power. I don't have the profession. Uh, I don't have what I used to. Uh, and what a comfort this is to know, nevertheless, God is using me. Whether I am a uh, pastor at Faith Lutheran Church, whether I am pastor emeritus, whether I am, you know, widower uh, sitting in a nursing home, whatever the case is in my life, I am a vessel molded by God. Uh, I am His clay, and He is using me for His purposes. And that's a tremendous comfort. Mm-hmm. So the Paul continues with this image in Romans 9 and verse 22, but now he starts talking about vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. And again, we want to be very careful to understand Paul's language here so that we don't slip into errors. Take us into this next part of the image. Right. So vessels of wrath and mercy, you have this distinction. And and maybe the first place to start in verse 22 and verse 23 is to look at the verbs. I think that will help us um, uh, get where we need to go. Um, the uh, vessels of wrath, uh, first and foremost, what God does with them is endure with patience. So whatever else we're going to say about vessels of wrath, let's make note of the fact that Paul's point uh, is that the way he relates to these vessels of wrath is patient endurance, right? Another manifestation uh, of God's perfect righteousness. Even if he is uh, showing wrath to make known his power, um, as you said before, his proper work uh, is patient love. Um, also, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Contrast that prepared with, in verse 23, the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Um, different verbs in the Greek, and indeed different concepts. Um, it's kind of a challenging thing to get across in the English, and I think we can forgive the, the translators of the English Standard Version for um, you know, maybe maybe causing confusion, um, the preparation for destruction, we, we would probably better phrase this. Um, he has endured with much patience um, vessels of wrath who have prepared themselves for destruction. Or better put, uh, God has prepared destruction for vessels of wrath. And, and the point I'm trying to make is that the identity as a vessel of wrath is not God's doing. That's not what God prepares. 
All right? God makes things that are good. When God molds clay for his good purposes, it is good clay, and they are good vessels. The reality of sin, as we all know, uh, is that we have rejected God's call, God's active word. Uh, we have turned our back on God. And vessels of wrath are those who have transformed themselves uh, into uh, people destined for destruction. We kind of saw a similar thing if you're on the three-year lectionary uh, in First Peter chapter 2 uh, last week, where you have uh, Peter talking about, uh, in the English Standard Version, it says, uh, those destined to disobey the word. Um, and, and again, it's probably better translated there, people stumble, is what he had said earlier, um, they're destined to stumble because they disobey the word. So, you know, the, the, the wrath, the destruction, the condemnation, the damnation, that's the result of our own activity. Now, the vessels of mercy, on the other hand, have been prepared beforehand, right? So this is a different thing. This isn't the result of the vessel's activity. This is something that was done to the vessel from the beginning, in the creation of the vessel. Um, and here we do have absolutely uh, kind of a, a uh, reference of, of what you might call the election to grace. And, you know, your listeners probably know that uh, we Lutherans uh, uh, understand God's word uh, to say, essentially, that if you are condemned, you are at fault for your condemnation. And if you are saved, God is the reason for your salvation. Um, there appears to be, in our limited scope, a logical contradiction there, and there's not. Um, but that's, that's sort of how we, uh, what we struggle with. Uh, but these vessels of mercy, God is the one doing all of the work. Uh, God prepared the vessels for mercy beforehand. And then even more importantly, within the context of Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, God pours out his mercy into those vessels. And that's where the vessel language is really helpful. You can just picture this vessel, uh, you know, uh, being made by God, becoming a vessel of wrath, maybe by his or her own uh, actions. And then God pours into that vessel unbelievable mercy, righteousness, and love uh, that turns that vessel, transforms that vessel into something new and something better. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's important here that even as we, we think about, you know, God's eternal election towards grace, um, for us, if you read the scriptures, the primary culmination, if not the sort of the primary chronological culmination, but the, the primary culmination of God's outpouring of mercy is not election, but rather redemption in Jesus Christ. That is where we see God's mercy poured out, and that is what vessels of mercy hang their head on. Look to see what God has done for me through Jesus. Look to see the mercy he has shown by his Son. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And I, I mean, the way you, you took us through the verbs particularly, I think, is is so very helpful, especially in, when it comes to the, the vessels of wrath, that that God's action toward them is his endurance with patience, which I mean, that, that really, when we get that, that sets the stage for, for the, for the whole thing. I think that, that his, he's enduring. And then the matter of to the two words that are translated prepared in the English standard. And again, you know, 
man, translators who, who put together translations for use in the church at large have a tough task. And so not to, to look down upon him, but, but the use of prepared twice here is a bit misleading because it isn't the same verb in Greek. And, and to recognize who's doing the, the action in each is, is such a key that God is enduring with patience those who've, who are in, in, a, in, in Martin Franzman's Romans commentary. He suggests that in verse 22, the way that we would might think about the vessels of wrath is that they're they're ripe or they're ready or they're due for destruction. Think of the um, oh, it's in I can't remember where it is. I think it's in Luke thirteen, in where Jesus tells the parable of the the fig tree that didn't bear any fruit. And and the the vine dresser comes along and says, Let me let me plow around it and till around it and fertilize it for one more year. And, and let's see if it bears fruit. And I think that's I think that's the picture of verse twenty two. And that that parable is is there to to remind us that yes, there is a time for judgment and it's coming. So repent now, but also to to show us the mercy of God in his his endurance with patience. And, and yeah, then and, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that that's that's exactly it. That's so characteristic of God. If you read the scriptures, we don't we don't see him immediately smiting sinners, uh, you know, at, at the first opportunity. Over and over again, we see him uh, showing mercy, patiently enduring, waiting for people to repent, giving them opportunities to repent. I mean, the whole history of his relationship with Israel is precisely that, and you see it in the New Testament church as well. And uh, yeah, the, the parable of the fig trees is spot on in terms of uh, God giving it another year. And of course, in Christ, uh, we see that repentance and that uh, that faith and that salvation uh, work itself out, um, God willing. Hmm. So then, um, the the whole conversation then about these vessels of wrath, vessels of mercy, which climaxes in this matter, the vessels of mercy that God has prepared beforehand for glory. Then, it, I mean, it seems that especially when you you put chapters nine through eleven together, verse twenty four is really what Paul's has been driving at the whole time that this is true both for Jews and Gentiles alike. Right, and that's within the context of Romans. You know, what Paul is having to do here, and the whole New Testament church, um, as, as you know, you've discussed with other guests um, in, this, in this book and in other, uh, other epistles, we see this tension between God's chosen people of the Old Covenant and now these, these Gentiles, uh, uh, from whom the Israelites have long been set apart, are now being welcomed into the family of God with open arms uh, through Christ, and that um, that requires some explaining, uh, both for the the uh, Jews who need to uh, come to understand uh, that their relationship with God was always by virtue of faith and thus uh, available to Gentiles, uh, but also for the Gentiles who need to understand. Um, and we might we might think in particular of Romans. I mean, uh, Rome is the center of the world, um, but here Paul is making it very clear, um, uh, you know, you, you're being welcomed into the family, but it's not because you're so great, uh, and it's not because of what you've done. Uh, you have been transformed from a vessel of wrath to a vessel of mercy by the active Word of God. So yeah, this verse 24 kind of takes the um, maybe abstract explanation or argument in the preceding verses and applies it directly to the Roman Christians in the context of the early New Testament church. And then our section for today concludes with a, a couple of Old Testament quotes. So Paul starts by by bringing up the prophet Hosea. What do we have from, from the prophet Hosea? 
Yeah, so a couple of passages from Hosea. Uh, Paul takes them in uh, in reverse chronological order. You have Hosea 2, uh, uh, you know, those who were not my people, I will call my people. Mature who is not beloved, I will call beloved. Uh, if, if you remember from Hosea, uh, originally the reference of that prophecy were uh, uh, was Hosea's own children, um, his uh, his daughter and his second son, whom God instructed him to name a certain way so that um, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel, uh, who were about to undergo uh, this very traumatic period, the northern kingdom in Hosea is about to be uh, conquered by the Assyrians. Um, nevertheless, Paul uses the name of the prophet's children as a way of uh, I, I should say God uses the name as, of the prophet's children as a way of communicating uh, that he will still call them beloved. He will call them his people even after this conquest and this dispersion. Um, the second reference from Hosea is from Hosea chapter 1, um, where it talks about the uh, same idea, that there's a place where you're not my people, uh, then you will be called in that same place, sons of the living God. Just as the Israelites were dispersed, conquered, uh, God is going to seek after uh, them uh, in the same way, just as the Gentiles are apart from God outside of Christ, God is seeking after them, such that whereas before they weren't his people, now they are. Before in this place the law condemned them, now the gospel makes them sons, uh, which is what Paul is conveying through Hosea there. Hmm. And then he closes the, the section with a couple of quotations from the prophet Isaiah. Take us into that, Pastor Speckard. Right, and same, very same idea with Isaiah. Uh, in fact, Paul kind of conflates Hosea 2 with Isaiah 10 to get into that first uh, quotation. So, uh, Though the number of sons of Israel uh, be a sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. You'll have opportunity to talk more about the significance of remnant uh, in this section of Romans. Um, we hear that, and we maybe think of uh, a negative connotation, that only a few will be saved. But the purpose in the original prophecy from Isaiah... Uh, wherever you see remnant discussed in Scripture, it's actually a great comfort to know that God's Word uh, is what makes the remnant who they are. God preserves a, and we see in verse 29, the second, um, the second citation from Isaiah, uh, God preserves a remnant, an offspring, a seed. In other words, God preserves faith in Christ amongst his people so that those whose relationship with God is founded upon that faith will always have the righteousness of God uh, from God for them. Um, so much more to be said about uh, remnant, and I know that you'll have a chance to do so later on, uh, but that's the idea there in, in Isaiah. Yeah, I mean, once again, I appreciate the way that you're you're looking at this passage and you're, you're taking those parts that, again, do sound scary or troubling, perhaps, and, and focusing our attention on the right spot, the places where Scripture focuses our attention, brings us that comfort, that, that the matter of the remnant is comforting. The fact that the Lord leaves his offspring, that he, through all of the attacks against the line of the Christ in the Old Testament, that he preserves that line for the sake of saving both Jew and Gentile alike, that's, that's the comfort. That's the point of this text. And again, all of that happens because of God's purposes, because he is the potter. He's the one molding things. He's the one who's accomplishing his will, even when people like Pharaoh do their best to get in the way. He's still, he's still the actor. Pastor Specker, we've got just about four minutes left here on the morning. Any points that we missed that you'd like to, to hit or summarize, wrap things up for us? Yeah, maybe just, just a couple of thoughts. To reiterate what I said at the beginning, 
Um, if you're a, a listener who's going to follow along in this, uh, this section of Scripture, uh, go ahead and, and read 9 through 11, and I would just encourage you uh, to let this text be difficult. Um, let yourself struggle with it. Uh, let it master you. I think sometimes we read the Bible like we read uh, other types of literature, where if I just study it enough and if I learn it well enough, I'm going to master the, uh, the literature. Um, that's not really how it works with the Scriptures. And you see, uh, we might remember uh, earlier in the section, Paul saying, Who are you, O man? Um, you're not going to master the living and active Word of God. The living and active Word of God masters you. And as we see in this section, it's for your benefit. God is working for you out of love in His righteousness. He's pouring it all out for your sake. And not just in the way that you read the Bible, uh, but also just as you understand your relationship with God. Um, I said at the beginning how crazy my life has been personally. I imagine a lot of people listening in the midst of this pandemic have experienced something similar. Use this as an opportunity to take a step back and see and hear what God has done, what God is doing, and know what God will do for you through his Son. That's really what this communicates uh, to all of us. That's really what Paul is proclaiming here. Pastor Dan Speckert is the pastor at Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois, helping us this morning with Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. And again, Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois, is the Church of the Week here on KFU. Pastor Speckert, thanks for helping us out this morning. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. God, God's primary work is to show mercy. He has mercy on those he'll have mercy. He'll have compassion on those he'll have compassion. That's what he did for his people Israel in the Old Testament. Even when they they fell into the gross idolatry of the golden calf, he had mercy and compassion on them. Even through Pharaoh, who, who intended to get in the way of that mercy and compassion, the Lord worked his will. He's the potter. We're the clay. And he is molding us for his use. What what good news for us, for Jew and Gentile alike. This is God's work, and he's doing it for the sake of showing us mercy. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.